Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers is on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet with clean remedies that actually work. You and your family deserve to feel your best all day, every day, which is why Beekeepers Naturals creates clean, science-backed remedies that naturally support your daily health. P.S. This is like the best time ever for me to have them as a sponsor because I am actually sick. So I am using their Bee Soothe cough syrup, which could not have arrived at my doorstep at a better moment um, and is amazing. And it's a truly clean cough syrup, which makes me feel so much better. It has no drugs, dyes, dirty chemicals, refined sugars, and it tastes good, which is great. I mean, I can suck it up for anything, but it happens to taste really good. a sort of a light, sweet, natural berry flavor um, and has already made my throat feel better. I also love the throat spray that they have called Propolis Throat Spray, um, sort of a daily defender um, promoting immune health and helping scratchy throats, which I have. And then there's even Bee Powered Honey, which is great, and I've been putting it in my tea today. So thank you to Beekeepers Natural. I even have my own URL, so go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash no time. That's beekeepersnaturals.com dot com slash no time and the promo code to enter is no time and o t i m e so go check it out and i'm excited to expose you to this great brand Vanda Levita is the award-winning author of six books including let the northern lights erase your name the lovers and the divers clothes lie empty her novel, We Run the Tides, is just out from Echo. She is a founding editor of The Believer and co-editor of The Believer Book of Writers Talking to Writers and Confidence, or The Appearance of Confidence, a collection of interviews with musicians. She was a founding board member of 826 Valencia, the San Francisco Writing Center for Youth, and lives in the Bay Area with her family. Welcome, Vendela. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me, Zoe. This is such a pleasure. I am so excited to talk to you about We Ran the Tides, which is amazing and made me feel like I was back to being a girl again. I actually went to an all-girls school where we wore uniforms. Oh, wow. and like It just felt like I was like back in it, although I was in New York growing up. But So can you tell listeners first what this latest novel of yours is about and what inspired you to write it? Okay. So I will start kind of, I'm going to switch order and talk first about what inspired me to write the book and then what it's about. Perfect. You can do whatever you want. This is your half an hour. You, you just, we don't even have to talk about the book. <laughs> so we run the ties started actually four years ago, the day after Trump was elected in 2016 uh, in a different form. It started as a nonfiction book about lies and the nature of lying and what causes people to lie and the pollution that lies can cause. And so I became very obsessed with the election and with the work of a Swedish American philosopher named Cicela Bach. And I wrote a whole, I spent a year, about about a year researching a book that was about lies, a nonfiction book. Slowly that morphed into a fictional book about young girls growing up in San Francisco, because that might seem like a very, you know, far end of the spectrum. But basically I felt like 
creating teenage protagonists made sense when talking about lying because I feel like teenagers just by their very nature are shapeshifters and they're trying on different personalities and lying a lot. And those lies can be contagious and passed along from one person to another. And the trick, of course, is just eventually learning not to lie. And I think that's kind of, <laughs> kind of what makes people become a grown-up. People ask me that sometimes. My kids ask me, like, how do you know when you're an adult? And, you know, some people give answers like, well, it's when you start making dental appointments on your own. That's how, you know, you know, you know you're an adult. I actually... <laughs> I don't know. I just made a dental appointment for my husband. So I, I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> I was wondering what that face was. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh-oh, we were literally in the other room, like, talking about the dentist. But anyway. <laughs> no, but I think it's... Okay, but here's... That's what some people say. So the good news is that I actually think it's when you stop lying to yourself and to other people. That's my definition of when you become an adult. And so this book is about two young women, Yulabi and Maria Fabiola, who are growing up in San Francisco and they go attend an all-girls school and they witness something on the way to school one day that might be a horrific act, might not be. One of them thinks it is a horrific act. Maria Fabiola, Yulabi does not see anything, but she's encouraged to lie about what she saw. And when she doesn't, she's ostracized from her group of friends. And that's where the book starts taking off from there. That horrific act, by the way, was seen all the time in New York growing up. That was like par for the course. Yes. I mean, this, did that happen to you? It must have happened. You know, I, I couldn't, can't remember if it happened to me exactly, but it seemed like something that happened a lot. And, you know, what it is, is they see something, a man in a car and some, you know, I won't go into it because it's, yeah, we don't have to give anything away, but yeah. But I think that men in cars, especially vintage cars, had this sort of like threat to you or promise, depending on how you saw it or how many times you'd watch Greece or whatever. whatever. <laughs> so, so I wanted that to be the catalyst for these lies and for the unraveling of these girls' relationships. And I read this piece where you were interviewed in The Guardian and it said that the part about pretending your family had adopted a friend was actually something that you had done, yes. which is in the book. Is that true? Tell me about it that. It is true. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I wanted... Maria Fabiola in the book is the main liar, but I wanted something, a story that shows that Yulabi was actually a liar as well. And she kind of starts this chain of lying. It's like I said, do you think that lying is kind of like, you know, it's like when you are younger and you, the only example I can think right now is like when you see your friend unhook their bra without looking like underneath their t-shirt and then, you know, some, they pass along that knowledge to somebody else and gets passed around and pretty soon the next summer party, everyone just acting like they've been doing it their whole lives, right? <laughs> Even though they've just gotten bras. So I feel like lying is passed around the same way. Like you, someone tells a lie about something and gets attention for it when you're a young girl and then the next person passes it along. So yes, I am, I basically stole a story from myself, my own life, which I don't really think counts as, as plagiarism. I self-plagiarized a story about how when I was growing up, I did pretend that there was a girl, she was a girl from like this really cool hippie, I thought hippie-ish family. We'd go to her house and her mom and her boyfriend would have us eat fondue like while sitting on pillows on the floor. And I just thought the whole, I thought the whole scene was very cool, you know, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And she was over my house one time and I just, we decided to pretend that she was my newly adopted sister. And so we ran around the block telling everyone that my family had adopted her. And that seemed really fun for about an hour. And we kind of forgot about it. But then all the, the neighbors had not forgotten about it. And they all started calling my parents, congratulating them. And that was my first exposure to really getting in trouble for a lie and having to go back around the walk and explain myself to everybody. And I also learned something important in that, in that lie or that period, which was that, you know, as a liar, you get in a lot of trouble. But if you, if you write something called fiction, you actually don't get in trouble. So I think that's actually when I started 
turning to fiction as a writer more and more. Although I will say these days it has, you have to be careful of what you write in fiction in order to make sure you're at, you know, you have to write about something that you have enough knowledge about in some way that you can write as if you know about it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? In terms, you can't like appropriate somebody else's culture or race or something. I mean, there are rules still in fiction. Right. That are highlighted. Rules, but I think if you're, if you're plagiarizing yourself, it's, it's <laughs> no rules. All the rules are off. <laughs> All bets are off. hundred percent. Oh my gosh. Well, for Maria Fabiola, another thing that was interesting in the book is like what happens with so many groups of friends. She develops earlier mm-hmm. than other people. She becomes this great beauty, everybody. And you have this great, you have this great passage where the mom, like one of the moms, I think Jill's mom, one of the moms takes a picture of the three of them on the doorstep mm-hmm. and says like, my, you guys are getting beautiful. And and she's like, well, she, Yulavi's like, she didn't even look at me. She was obviously not even talking about me. And it's also like, so what happens to a friend group as you start the same way and then time takes you off in different directions? It's like the beginning of the splintering right. of so many reasons. So I love how you capture that. So I don't know, tell me a little about that and how like friendships tend to fracture. Yeah, that was kind of, I have to say it's, that was a fun character to invent. Maria Fabiola doesn't exist in my life and doesn't didn't exist in my childhood, but I feel like we've all had Maria Fabiolas in our lives. You know, people who just somehow become like fabulous in front of our eyes. We're watching them through someone else's eyes and we're like, oh my gosh, this person is, is fabulous. <laughs> so she was someone I had a lot of fun creating. And I just like the idea too, because when you are, you know, everyone goes to an awkward period, obviously when you're younger, but when you see someone actually emerge from the awkwardness before everyone else does, it's kind of incredible to witness. Right. And I think that obviously I have a teenager now, a teenage daughter, and just seeing her see her friends go through that too, is also really interesting. And even as a mother, seeing these girls who've grown up, seeing which ones are suddenly now like six feet tall. And it's, it's really kind of amazing for lack of a better word. Just it's, it makes you feel really old, but it's also kind of incredible. (laughs) So that is how I came up with Maria Fabiola's character. And, and I do think there's something about her beauty that I wanted to think about too. And just, especially because they're going to all girls school and I wanted to talk about the male gaze a lot in terms of both what they're taught in school. They're taught a lot of books about how to, they're basically taught how to look at themselves through a man's eyes, whatever way that might be, even in more subconscious ways by the texts that they're assigned and the way they're graded on the books that they're assigned. And I made up a character called Mr. London who's a young teacher. He's really too young to be teaching at the school because there's not enough of an age difference. And so all the girls secretly kind of are, you know, confu- they're just confused about him. And he assigns books by Jack London to kind of make people think that maybe there's a connection there and he's related to Jack London. And he also assigns books like Salinger and Franny and Zoe. And he actually gives a girl, he gives Yulabi a bad grade because he doesn't think that she understands teenage girls. And so that was something I was playing around with too, just the way that these girls are watching Maria Fabiola develop into this beauty at the same time they're being taught how to, how to view that through literature. I love that whole scene where the teacher's like, well, you're in trouble. You have to like Franny and Zoe. It's like a work, um, it's a masterpiece. You have to like, she's no, I, I, you know, kind of lost interest. Wasn't my thing. He's like, you can't say that. (laughs) Anyway, that was pretty funny. So tell me about how you, you've been writing forever. You've got an MFA. You have been writing multiple novels, Mm -hmm. keep like all different life stages, a lot about women from widows to young girls. Tell me about how you come up with all of your ideas or like how you, maybe more how you approach projects. Like when do you know a new one is coming 
how often do you write new books? Like, what is your schedule like? Like, how do you think about books as they as they go along your life with you? Such a great question, Zibi. I wish I I wish I had a format or a formula <laughs> to, to do them more, produce books more often. But you know, this one took me about four years, in part because I started with this being a nonfiction book about lies. But I also feel like with every book I write, there's a book that I didn't write or like started off a different direction. I had to abandon it, and it gave birth to the current to the new one. So I probably publish, write a book every three or four years, but it doesn't mean I've just been working on that book. I've probably been working on the earlier incarnation that got buried along the way. And it all starts with just when you know you have an idea you can't get rid of. You know, I feel like you have to really be in love with something before you start writing it because you're going to spend so much more time with that idea than you ever thought possible. Like more, like you're just going to, it's like, you can't just be like, you can't just have a crush on something. You have to be in, in love with this idea and want to explore every facet of it. And so for example, I have a new idea for a book now. I'm starting to research it by reading books that are, you know, I, I want to take place over the course of a weekend. So I'm reading a lot of books that take place over the course of a night, like Haruki Murakami, a book by Haruki Murakami, or books that take place over a weekend, like Peter Cameron's The Weekend, which was a book I read 20 years ago and really, really remember enjoying. And I also have Virginia Woolf's novels that take place, that takes place in the day to the lighthouse. No, sorry, Mrs. Dalloway takes place in the course of a day. And so I'm circling this idea, whether it will actually end up happening, I don't know, but that's what I'm doing right now is I'm working on this idea of a book that takes place in a condensed period of time because I've never done that before. And there's something fun about trying something new with every book. Joanna Hershon wrote a book called St. Evo and that takes place over a weekend. Oh, I love Joanna Hershon. I have to, I'll have to read that book. I saw that came out. Yeah, I used to yeah, know her. It was really good. A long time ago in New York. Great. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. No problem. <laughs> Let me know what your next book idea is. I'll give you some research, <laughs> research tips. Let me use this knowledge for something. It's like useless knowledge in my head of all these books. No, not useless, but I'm kidding. <laughs> and what is it like? So you're married to a fellow author who, by the way, he's going to be, Dave Eggers is going to be on my podcast like in two weeks. I don't know oh, if really? you talked about that or not, but anyway, for his children's book. But when you are both writing or when you're in a marriage and the two of you even have the same profession, whether you're like bankers or doctors or whatever, like how how do you divides or the work and talk and the home talk and how does that interplay with your family life if at all if not then it doesn't you know it's funny I get asked a question every once in a while I don't know how to answer it to be honest because it's the only thing I know you know we've been married for maybe we've been together for almost 20 years and I don't know any other way of, of of being and the only way I can really explain is I feel like there's just a shorthand where we know when the other person's going through something. So for example, if he's working really hard on something, I know just not to overschedule that time period or to expect, I don't know. I just, I, I think the same goes for him. Like he knows, right. He knew when I was finishing, we run the tides, he gave me a lot, a lot of space to just, you know, finish it. Like I didn't have to do anything around the house for, for a long time. <laughs> and I didn't have to ask. It just was like, it was just an unspoken agreement that I, would be able to stay at an office where I was working. And it just, it was, it's just unspoken, I guess. So that's why I'm having a hard time articulating how that agreement works. Cause I think a lot of it comes from just understanding and having empathy for what the other person's going through and not having to, to talk, talk it through. <laughs> that's great. I mean, there are like many books. I could recommend some of those too, like Fair Play by Eve Rodsky and like many others that are all about like the division of labor inside the household and how to get people to the stage that you're at with how to sort of seamlessly pick up and put down when other people are 
just sense. Anyway, I don't know. That's very interesting. And tell me about your nonprofit. Was it Valencia? Yeah. So that is a learning and writing center. It's mostly a writing center for kids ages eight through 18, although some of them start younger in San Francisco. So as a founding board member of 826 Valencia, and it's named after the street that it's on Valencia Street, which is also exciting for me personally, because my father grew up in that neighborhood in the Mission District. And he actually pronounces it the old way, which is in terms of Valencia, which is always fun for me to hear. And so he knew a lot about the neighborhood. And my family actually used to have, I think, like a, a vacuum cleaner store on that street, like across the street, something like that. And so I'm really tied to that neighborhood and to the place. And about 20 years ago, we started inviting students in to be tutored by people who just had a lot of free time on their hands, people who were writers who maybe, you know, it's really hard as a writer to work from like 9 to 7 p.m. straight. Or, you know, even if you're doing if you're doing that, you're probably lying to somebody. <laughs> Yeah. to yourself if you actually are saying that you're lying 10 if you're yes. writing 10 hours a day speaking of lies this is this could go in the line yeah so it was kind of a way to get people who had extra time but really wanted to work with words involved with helping kids on a one-on-one basis so we help support the teachers in their classrooms and oftentimes the teachers ask the tutors for their help and just say I have teachers say I have so many students I can't give them the one-on-one help that they need can you please help? And that's and that's what the tutors do. And so obviously that's been a little different now during the pandemic, but there's been a lot of Zoom tutoring. And I'm really proud of the organization and just love all the people involved. And that's that's 826 Valencia. That's amazing. So what kind of books do you like to read when you're not researching other books? When I'm not researching other books. Well, it's funny you ask that because I was thinking how much my reading habits have changed in the last year with the pandemic. I used to almost always exclusively gravitate towards books set in other countries. I mean, I loved, I used to love writing books. I used to. I still love writing books set in other countries. But this last one, We'd Run the Ties, is one of the first books I've written that's set exclusively in the United States. But during the pandemic, I turned a lot to mysteries and thrillers, for example. I think in part because I just wanted an answer. I wanted to get to the end and have a solution and have a big finale at the end and know that it, the mystery had been solved and the book was over. And so I, I read a lot of books that were recommended by Sarah Lyle in the New York Times. And basically at the time she had a column, I would just buy all the books on her crime and thriller list and read them all. One of the best ones I read was A Beautiful Crime by Christopher Bolin. I really love that book, um, set in Venice. And I, what else have I been reading lately? I am obsessed with Edith Wharton. I love Edith Wharton novels. So I've been rereading a lot of her work and I read a lot of contemporary novels that come out. One of my other favorite books that came out in the past year was Lily King's book, Writers and Lovers. And that was probably the first book I read in the pandemic. Did you read I it? loved that book so much. I, that is the book I stayed up until two in the morning to finish, loved. And I had her on my podcast and she came to my book club. And oh. anyway, I love her. Yeah, she's writing for my next anthology. But yes, my like one of my best of the year, I would say. One of the best books that came out this year. I just loved, loved it. it. I read it in March, right when the pandemic was hitting. And it really kind of, I feel like it was a catharsis for me too. I laughed a lot. I cried a lot. I emailed her a fan letter and I had this big plan. I said, okay, during the pandemic, I'm just going to start writing fan letters to every author whose books move me. And then the many that I had to stop after a while. <laughs> That's so nice. Well, there are enough people not taking the time to do that. I'm sure it means a lot. I mean, do you get fan letters? You must get, how do you feel about people reaching out to you? That's always really nice. You know, it's really, that's why in some ways with this book coming out and not being able to do readings in bookstores, it's, you know, a little sad. You'll hear writers talk about that. It's sad to not do a book tour. And I think this, the thing that I will miss is that just, that's the one time as a writer that you connect with your 
reader one-on-one. Like obviously now we're connecting, but that's not something you do with like every, every reader. And so I, I will miss that opportunity to actually get to, to meet people. And it's obviously different from being an actress where you are on stage and you see people responding to your, to your play or, you know, or, you know, it's, it's unlike a lot of other professions where there's immediate feedback or response. And so that's something that I miss. And so, yeah, whenever I get a letter, I'm really, really happy. And I try to write back when I can. So nice. I think that's one of the things I realized that I had no idea of before I did this podcast or anything was that like authors are actually just people who will be like replying to DMs and you know, like <laughs> that authors are somehow now so accessible in a way, not all the time. I don't mean to like breach yeah. privacy or anything, but just, <laughs> that, you know, when I was growing up, I used to literally write fan letters and like mail them and mm-hmm. maybe I would hear back. And now it's like, oh, do, do, do. Like who, would write, who would you write fan letters to? My first fan letter was to an author. Her name was Zibby O'Neill. So she had the same first name. And I was like, oh my gosh, my name on a book. This is what yeah. I've always wanted. <laughs> At least my first name. I think I was 10 or something. And I remember my mom like helped me and we like called the the publisher and got her address in Michigan. And we were pen pals for like three years. And then she came to New York and took me to tea at the plaza. Oh, so, that's a great yeah. story. I love that. It was awesome. much more sophisticated than my first fan letters were to Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> so. oh, no, that was my literary fan letters. I also wrote like Kurt Cameron fan letters, <laughs> growing pains. Like, yeah, I think maybe even Ricky Schroeder at one point. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I'm probably much older than you. But anyway, <laughs> that was my, those are my fan letters. So what advice would you have for aspiring authors? I think my advice never changes um, when I'm teaching either eight to six or when I'm teaching students who are older. It just, you have to, putting the time every day to write. I think like even if you aren't, I'm supposed to say that you're lying to yourself about how much you're getting done. I think just blocking out those three hours a day, especially if you're just coming up with an idea, three hours is plenty of time to sit by yourself and write anything, write a paragraph, write a page. It doesn't mean if, it doesn't matter if you're going to use it ultimately or not. You know, it's just a matter of keeping yourself in training and, and, you know, it's the same thing people say, like you wouldn't just go out and run a marathon, right. Without like doing, you know, training for it. And I don't think the same thing is true of books. Like you, you in some ways just have to be writing every day and put in the time because you never know when you're going to catch on to something. I'm thinking about the beginning of We Run the Tides when I started writing it. I didn't know that that day was going to be different from any other day when I'm just sitting in my office thinking, oh my God, do I have writer's block? What's happening? Why is my book not coming? What's, what, it's not coming to me. And I wrote the first sentence, which what is, I don't want to misquote myself, but the first sentence I was writing by hand, so I always write by hand until I figure out the rhythm of the book. And the first sentence is, we are 13, almost 14, and these streets of Seacliff are ours. And I wrote that sentence, and it just, the rhythm of it made sense to me. And then I just kept going, because I didn't want, I was afraid if I stopped, somehow I would lose the idea for the book. But that's that's what it took, and it was just a normal day. I canceled all my plans that afternoon, so I was like, okay, I need to actually make space now for this idea to take take root. And that's what I would say. So writing every day. And you always write by hand? When I'm starting a book, you know, I'm not that superstitious, but I have all these things that I do. Like when I'm starting a book, I write by hand until I figure out the rhythm and the voice. And then once I figure out the first few pages and feel like I've locked into it, then I switch to, do you really want to hear this? (laughs) I do. I actually really want to hear this. Then I switch to the laptop and I start typing up what I've written by hand so that I can kind of get into the rhythm and then I keep going. And then, so for the first week, I try to write a thousand words a day. So, and then once I'm, anyway, that's. No, tell me, tell me. Once you write 500 words a day. And then if I, as I get further into, I write a thousand words a day. And again, it doesn't mean that those words are going to stay because clearly my books are not, 
if I kept, they're not that long. If I kept all the words I'd written, you know, my books would be a lot longer, but I'm a big sculptor afterwards. I just go through and take out all the, all the extra words. Wow. That's really interesting. And see, I almost missed that little tidbit. That was great. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on this podcast. Thank you. It was so nice talking with you. It was so nice talking to you too. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to Keepers Naturals for helping me through a sick day with the amazing cough syrup and um, cough spray, throat spray that you have. And thanks for helping all my listeners. Beekeepersnaturals.com slash no time, promo code no time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.